Welcome to The Lubber's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. You're with Ian. And with Mike. As we continue our journey through the Aubrey Matra novels of Patrick O'Brien. Mike, remind us, would you please, where did we get to last week? Where might we and Jack and Stephen be headed this week? Oh, Ian, last week in Chapter 1 of The Yellow Admiral, Stephen surprised Sir Joseph Blaine at his home in London, and Stephen unaware that Spain had seized his fortune and almost seized him. Hmm. Blaine warned Stephen to get Jack out of Parliament and back to sea. Jack worried that the war ending might lead the Admiralty to retire him as a post-captain or, worse yet, make him a yellow admiral. Jack has lost one lawsuit over a seized slave ship, and he faces Uh several more already having to sell Ashgrove to pay the debts. Stephen, Diana, Bridget, Clarissa, Padine, and company have all come to stay at Wilcombe with Jack and Sophie. So we've got the one out-of-money family crashing with the other out-of-money family here. <laughs> uh, well, this time, Jack and Stephen discuss a plan to enclose the common land next to Wilcombe. We discover birds disguised as metaphors, or perhaps it's the other way around. And Jack plots to get himself into even more trouble in Parliament. Huh. And what an interesting chapter. Mike, we're going to come back a lot to the idea of enclosures. We're going to come back a lot to birds. But let's just get situated at the beginning of the chapter here. Stephen, the pharmacist's friend, <laughs> has been trying to use a whole different ways to ward off his insomnia, to help himself get a good night's sleep. He's been using things that most of us, if we know about them, would know about as poisons. Opium, mandragora, aconite, henbane. These are all things that I think most people would think of as toxic, toxic herbs. Henbane is known as deadly nightshade, or it's part of the same family. There's another one here, Datura stramonium, devil's snare or devil's trumpet. That doesn't sound like it's going to be good for you. Creeping skerret, which I think of as a kind of a parsnip, a very rare kind of heritage kind of parsnip. People still use it here in England for cooking. Um, And leopard's bane, a perennial herb in the daisy family, also toxic. But anti-inflammatory, right, Mike? Well, it is. It is. You know, this is what's used to make uh, Arnica Montana. And and that's Ah. my go-to, you know, anytime I find that my horse no longer separates me from the ground. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Okay. Good to know. We'll look out for that one. Now, Stephen shakes off his, uh, his, his morning feelings here. He's sitting, talking to Jack over coffee. And Jack says, why don't we take some guns out, see what we can knock over. And uh, on the way, he shows Stephen a couple of uh, key rooms and key spaces here in the manor at Wilcombe. First of all, the library and then the justice room. And the library is really nice because we get this chance to pause and associate ourselves with books and learning and the role of Clarissa Oakes, who's going to come and maybe be a bit of a governess and teach some Latin and Greek and French, certainly Latin at any rate, to George, who needs to know his Amoa Masamat. Jack mentions in passing, by the way, that, as you said, Mike, everybody's down on their luck right now, and Jack's great plans for modernizations have had to take a pause. And next we get into the justice room. And I, and I love this idea of Stephen pr- practically holding his tongue at the idea that Jack holds some kind of sway over the regular people of the parish. And start out by asking, what's the room for? Jack, it turns out, is a justice of the peace, to to use the phrase here, one of the righteous. And I think that is meant with a kind of questioning tone, like, Jack Aubrey? Uh, 
righteous. And we get this nice explanation from Jack, the, the, the beginning of many nice bits of exposition between Jack and Stephen about how local customs and local law and property are all working here. The Aubreys, he said, have always been justices of the county, says it has nothing to do with righteousness, presumed or otherwise. He has made rulings as a justice that have upset his previous neighbours because he doesn't like to come down hard on poachers. And we're going to hear more about Jack's role as a local leader and Jack's very benign, very kind of open-handed views towards the common people of the country a bit more in the chapter. Meanwhile, their main mission for the morning is to go out and knock over some rabbits. And he gives Stephen a gun to use that's made by Joe Manton. We've talked about Manton guns earlier on, back in Postpack Captain and HMS Surprise and many of the other books in the canon. And Stephen's very impressed. He calls this the fouling piece of the world, beautifully balanced. And Jack has a little humble brag about how the the touch hole made of platinum won't corrode and won't choke. And Stephen takes a moment to realise that uh, he'd never had a Manton gun, even when he was rich, much less one with a platinum touch hole, which is, I think, his way of saying, you know what, We're, we're, we're down on our luck, but we're not so down on our luck here. There are plenty of people that don't have this kind of gun to go out shooting with. And Jack says, well, are you telling me that you're no longer rich? And now we get this story from Stephen about how he's had his fortune seized by the authorities in Spain. He still has his pay as a naval surgeon, although it is in arrears, and he's planning to sell Barham and get a small cottage nearby. And Jack, for his part, says, well, I'm in the same boat. He describes to Stephen this long series of lawsuits, the damages that he has to pay, the cold treatment that he's getting from the first sea lord in particular. They're all saying, it's on you, Jack Aubrey. The damages are in in your court. You must pay them. If this second case should go against him, that's going to be it. He's going to even more certainly have to sell Ashgrove. And, you know, he and Sophie had been talking about that in the previous chapter. Like Stephen, he says, well, it's not so bad. I'm not desperate yet. I've got my naval pay. I can't be arrested for debt while I'm a member of parliament. And meanwhile, here we are. We have some rabbits to eat. He gets to the gate. Jack shoots his first rabbit and they start this conversation about the land that they're shooting on here, that they're hunting on, the common. Stephen says, I'm confused about what, what this common ownership could mean. And Jack mentions enclosure, which he had heard about being done by his father for part of the land back in another time when Jack was on the far side of the world. But Mike, tell us, talk us through this, this discussion that Stephen and Jack have about enclosure and what's it meaning for Jack. Yeah, Stephen's you know a little bit confused here because he's thinking, wait a minute, we're on the commons. I thought you said your dad had enclosed the commons. And, and Jack explains, well, that was Wolhampton Common uh, or Wolcom Common. They're, they're both words are you know, used the same way. Yeah. This is a different common, Simmons Lee Common. Uh, it's a place that Jack had spent a lot of time as a boy. His his gamekeeper for Wolcom had kind of showed him how to fish and ferret and poach and hunt and set snares there. Uh, later, Hennage had come down and he and Jack had hunted there. And, you know, Stephen is learning about all this. Meanwhile, he's watching, gets his first rabbit, yeah. you know, and Stephen asked Jack if he preserves game. Jack says, no, he doesn't want to breed up birds just to knock him down like his neighbors do, but that sometimes his neighbors preserve game kind of comes on to the common here. And they think that one of the reasons that Jack 
doesn't want to go along with their enclosure plan is that he likes getting all this, you know, high reared game for free here. <laughs> and he points at one guy kind of heading their way on a pony saying, well, he's a good example, a sailor and a scrub. But Stephen says, well, wait, sailor and a scrub, that sounds like a contradiction in terms. Mm. And Jack explains that this is Griffiths. Uh, he's a neighbor. He's not much of a sailor. He's way too domineering. He's younger than Jack, has a lot more influence than Jack has ever had, is also a member of parliament. But early after he became a post captain, faced a mutiny and after that refused a command to take him to the West Indies. Jack says he prefers farming to sailing and was a prime mover in enclosing the Woolhampton, that is, Woolcombe Commons. Yeah. And he now wants to enclose Simmons Lee. And Jack starts to lay out what this means to a guy like Griffiths. He says, you know, he's going to lay it out like a military camp, you know, going for nothing but high yields, high rents, and game laws enforced to the letter Z. And that Texas, you know, this is Jack speaking, I may malign him, but just as he seems not to know the odds between a ship kept in apparent good order by Botany Bay methods and one which is in really good order, seamen-like order, because officers and men know their duty and do it without being driven. So he don't know the difference between a well-run estate and a place not far removed from a penal settlement where people are turned out for a trifle and a suspicion of poaching is a man's ruin. Tenants at will, of course, and whenever a lease falls in, and, and he stops himself because Griffiths is now just about to get there. Jack moves off the path, touches his hat, says, good day, sir. How do you do? Griffiths doesn't really say much. He returns the greeting, doesn't smile, is looking kind of closely at Stephen. Stephen's also looking at him and thinking to himself that, you know, this guy looks like another man given to ill humor whose youth and gaiety have deserted him. Perhaps Stephen thinks a victim of the power of giving orders, you know, back to Stephen's old rant about authority, or perhaps a disordered liver or both. Oh, yeah. Shades of Admiral Hart there, I think, in the, right. in the way Stephen's looking at this guy, Griffiths. Now, it's funny. It seems to me that Stephen's role in this chapter, is, is, in which we get a lot of explanation from Jack about these enclosures and common ownership and, and rights. Stephen's role seems to be to interject with either a little non sequitur or a tangent or even a joke, heaven forbid. And he's think, thinking about the character of somebody like Griffiths, thinking about people who have become uh, poisoned somehow, have had their souls corrupted by influence from the outside or by changing their own perception of themselves. And he comes up with this line, it was Burton, he says, it was Burton, I think, who observed that there were men who sucked nothing but poison from books. And he goes on and cites youths and even maidens with ludicrous ideas of what is the thing for persons of spirit, permanently distorted notions of conduct that is acceptable and conduct that is not. And he concludes, may not yet authors be even more poisonous? And these are words coming out of the mouth of Stephen Maturin and a joke that Stephen Maturin makes about the corrupting effects of uh, uh, of life on authors are probably a joke about Patrick O'Brien himself. But we have met this guy, Burton, before. It's a really, really interesting way that O'Brien's used the quote, or rather reused the quote. Robert Burton was the author of The Anatomy of Melancholy, which sounds like a book that Stephen Maturin would have on his shelf many a day. Um, he referred to it back in the letter of Mark when he was advising Jack about how to maintain his spirits and not give way to melancholy. 
The substance of the quote, though, we, we've had a good look for this, right, Mike? Um, right. The, the substance of the quote actually seems to come seems to come from or to be a lot like the story of Oscar Wilde's The Picture of Dorian Gray. And this is another one of those quotations, like the, the bells in the tower quote, that maybe O'Brien has used anachronistically because, of course, Picture of Dorian Gray wasn't written until the end of the century, 1890, 91. And maybe O'Brien was looking for a, a home to attribute this quote to in the mouth of Stephen Matchery and gave it to this guy, Burden. And the novel is really interesting. In the story, The Picture of Dorian Gray, Dorian Gray himself claims that Lord Henry Wotton had poisoned him with a book at some time, a morally poisonous, reprehensible French novel that had taught him vices that he'd experimented with in his hedonistic life under Wotton. And there's this kind of mode of accusation and defense and moralizing that takes place in the book. Wotton finally argues that, he says, as for being poisoned by a book, there is no such thing as that. And besides being the opinion of the, this main character, Wooden, it's also clearly the opinion of the author, because Wilde says in his preface that art should be appreciated for its beauty only, or be rejected, not on moral grounds, but because it might be poorly written or it might be not, not be beautiful. So this is Oscar Wilde taking up what you might call the art for art's sake movement of the late 19th century, art as separate from having a social value or a utilitarian value. And that's quite a good bit of O'Brien philosophizing for us to sit and think about here. He ends the thought with this phrase, though, yet might not authors be even more poisonous. Stephen would probably agree <laughs> that, that with the idea that authors are mumping villains. And he said that about one or two authors that we know about elsewhere in the uh, in the canon. So Mike, this, this might be commentary on the character of Griffiths and how life has kind of toxified him to some extent. On the other hand, maybe it's just O'Brien having a nice little tangent for us here and making the point that art isn't just for art's sake and that it has intrinsic value. Yeah, yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you, Ian. You know, yes, art should be beautiful, should be well-written, which O'Brien certainly is. But, you know, if our slow reader, the canon, has taught me anything, it's that art can be both beautifully written and present the human condition in a way that makes us think, yeah. um, you know, and which may, on the point of the author, take a position. And, and certainly they could take poisonous positions, but but not O'Brien, not yeah. these novels. And, and I think maybe O'Brien just signaling us that we're in the midst of reading another beautiful book with a continuing deep dive into what makes us who we are and what are the consequences of who we are for the people around us yeah. and for society itself. And, and one of the things that for me makes this so beautiful is that O'Brien does this morally in shades of gray rather than yeah. black and white. No, there are no perfect heroes and good guys and bad guys. And while he's telling that story, he uses these beautiful literary colors that we often refer to. So, you know, yeah. the ability to do all of that in one thing, you know, one of the reasons we love O'Brien and he's really signaling us to say, okay, big thick chapter here, ladies and gentlemen, you know, I just got off of slavers. Now I'm talking about enclosure, yeah. but watch this. So as an example of those, those beautiful literary colors, Jack now answers here you know he's, he's been talking about griffiths and the way griffiths came up in the navy and he's he's saying in the navy they're usually people to bring a puppy to his senses though i must confess and, and he breaks off to shoot at a snipe that flies up right in front of him and he misses and jack says well it <gasps> serves me right 
I'd almost said the service was not perfect. And, and I love, you know, here's O'Brien bringing a little <laughs> of that humorous balance back in. We know that the service, like art, is not always perfect, but Jack has to maintain here that it is. And Stephen asks if their area that they're walking through has, has more water in the winter. And Jack says, you know, absolutely, it does. And just then, Stephen kind of nods to Bess, the hunting dog, and Bess flushes out a brace of teal. Stephen brings one of the ducks down and Jack misses again. Jack seems to be consistently <laughs> missing along here. And Jack says, well, he shouldn't have spoken at all. He says, you can never get into trouble by holding your goddamn tongue. And <laughs> when, when have we seen Jack Aubrey ever practice that philosophy? <laughs> well, older and wiser, we hope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, Stephen's saying, no, 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 no. Come on, Jack. The only reason I got this bird is this sweet gun that you've loaned me here. And so uh, O'Brien tells us, in order to learn a little bit more and partly to put his friend at a moral advantage, Stephen says, you know, Jack, tell me a little bit more about enclosures. He says, you know, I've, I've heard that some people say they'll keep the country from starving, while others say, you know, it's just another way to get the land into rich man's hands and keep laborers' wages low. He says, now, and now I've also heard, now this is not my words, but I've heard that, you know, perhaps with the war ending soon, imported wheat will come back. So we really don't need to upset the old order, you know, the old agricultural order here. And as Jack starts to answer Stephen, he says, wait, you know, see that bird over there, what is that? It's a bar-tailed godwit, says Stephen. Wait, wait, could this be a bird metaphor? Uh, well, maybe it could. We've got some great bird metaphors coming up here in this chapter. I love the name Bartailed Godwit, by the way. I couldn't tell you what one looks like. It could even have been a made-up name. It's it's not, but it's such a great name that it could have been made up. It turns out that it's a migratory wading bird that lives on the coastline in mudflats and estuaries, feeding on bristleworms and shellfish. And these are birds that need a particular habitat to survive, so much so that they're, they're also known for being very long migrators. They've been tracked making these really, really long trips, uh, a 174-day round trip of 18,000 miles plus, with 20 of those days spent on the wing. One was tracked on a non-stop journey of 8,100 miles. So these are incredibly long, capable long-distance flyers, and that's because they need a particular kind of habitat. They need this marshy coastal habitat. They depend on the land being in a certain condition where they land on their roots so that they can live and breed, even though those marshy territories are found at opposite ends of the world. And Mike, it surely can't be an accident that the bar-tailed godwit being so dependent on land and habitat is coming up here at the moment when we're talking about folks who depend on the common land, depend on the, uh, the landscape around them to survive. Now, Let's come back to more bird metaphors later on in the chapter. But meanwhile, we're not done yet with exposition. Jack's going to tell us some more about people's rights on common land and about these different customs that he's involved in, that he has some knowledge of and maybe even some authority over, given his role. We've already heard about his role as a judge. Now, he... He gives himself a little a little get out. He says, well, I'm kind of not qualified to speak about enclosure, although he does go on to speak about enclosure. And he clearly does actually know something about it. And he certainly cares passionately. He says, you know, declaiming on the subject, he would like to leave to uh, one Arthur Young or maybe a friend of Young's, the recently promoted Admiral Sir Joseph Lepore, who I, I looked for and I couldn't find a real version of anyway. 
on the one hand, he says, earlier on, it, it had been shown to be true that enclosing certain kinds of land, land eminently suitable for enclosure, that enclosing those big old commons did increase corn production. Now, I don't think he's necessarily saying that was the case for, for Woolhampton Common, but he's certainly saying it is true. You can see that there's an economic benefit to be got from the scale of enclosing all the land and farming it for better yield. And then there's a big but. And the whole of the rest of this piece from Jack is really about the social consequences that come from taking this purely economic gain. Arthur Young, the guy he was referencing here, was an English writer about techniques and economics of agriculture who had learned them in his home county of Essex, had travelled around Britain, travelled around France, and had written this 47-volume book, Annals of Agriculture, in 1784. And interestingly, at the time that this was happening, um, one of the contributors to this volume under the pseudonym Ralph Robinson was actually George III, the king known as Farmer George, who will be a familiar name to all you Queen Charlotte Bridgerton story fans. Anyhow, Jack says he, he doesn't speak about it in Parliament, back to the point about holding your tongue, because he actually had been at sea for lots of the time when these enclosure motions were coming up. He hadn't known about them. He wishes, he says, that nine-tenths of the members who don't know about naval matters would stay silent on naval matters. Yeah, okay. He who knows doesn't speak, and he who speaks doesn't know, I think somebody once said. Even though he says he doesn't know all about the commons, he does know about his two local commons, Woolhampton Common and Simmons Lee, and he is, he says, absolutely opposed to the change and intends to take exactly that opposition in front of the committee coming up soon. And this is a chance for Stephen to say, well, hold on a second. T tell us about this, this enclosure plan then. If it's not you, who is it? Who's the power? Who's got the authority to bring this into place? And he starts out, Jack starts out with this description of, first of all, how actually laws about rights and property are very, very fragmented from place to place. There's this principle described in Latin as consuetudo loci est observanda. The local customs are to be observed and customs differ from manner to manner. And he describes how there's differences between Wilcombe Common and Simmons Lee in terms of whether there are fishing rights or peat cutting rights or timber cutting rights. And he explains that there are all kinds of rights about what people can and can't do on the commons that vary from parish to parish. And he describes them as being ruled by custom, to use his phrase, time out of mind, which is a phrase that Jack Aubrey often uses to describe ancient customs in his world in the Navy. And he therefore goes on and says, all of this gives a man a place in the village, making it more like a right ship's company. And now we get the Jack Aubrey perspective, right, Mike? He's, he would like the world to be run for intuitive, common, benign good with a leader rather than to be run for economic good by a parcel of the landowners. And uh, he thinks that sailors wouldn't be able to live without what they get as part of a ship's company. And similarly, the ship wouldn't be able to fight without the members of the ship's company. The, the commonality is important to him. Right, right. Well, and, and Jack's now emphasizing that, you know, those were these big commons of old, you were talking about, Ian, and that yep. the remaining commons are essentially what he calls the waste. It was all that was left over, all the good plow land, all the great grazing areas. They were enclosed long ago. And as he says this, you know, a heron flies over them. And Jack says, you know, there used to be scores of them around here. They used to nest nearby. But the manor's water bailiffs and keepers, these guys that work for the manor, 
pulled down their breeding nesting areas one year and they never came back. So here, another, you know, a, a, a minor bird metaphor, not even a metaphor here. This is kind of an ominous reference to yeah. what may happen to many of the commoners here. And he says that when Wilcom's keeper, Harding, was young, he never could abide anything that competed with us in killing. Uh, so he went out, this gamekeeper, Carden, and you know, he said, Stephen, you would have hated to see this. Nailed to the wall, hawks, falcons, owls, ospreys, eagles, weasels, stoats, and martens, and killed them rather than share nature with them. He notes yeah. that now that Harding's older, you know, he kind of leaves them alone, and everything is thriving here. And now, I've, I've seen weasels nailed to posts outside fields in England. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow, wow, wow. Well, it's funny. Jack describes this and is very opposed to this view, but then Bess wanders off, sends up a pheasant out of range, and Jack cusses this dog and says, you know, if she was younger, I would beat her. And Stephen comes in for the comic save here. He says, I've rarely seen a dog look so ashamed. She droops in all her members. And Jack says, well, she should be ashamed, you know, for rambling like a mad lunatic in that indecent way. And then he explains that that pheasant, you know, belonged to Griffiths. You know, it's a ring neck here. But, you know, he, she was too far away for me to shoot it. So here is Jack moralizing about this stuff and then saying, you know, I'm really upset at my dog for running a pheasant off, for being a dog and chasing a pheasant. By the way, I right. train her to raise these pheasants, but but she did it where I couldn't shoot her. So I couldn't get it. So we could all be as selfish as Harding was here, <laughs> as selfish as Griffiths is. It's, it's another of O'Brien's shades of gray here, which I love. Well... Jack explains that, you know, the enclosure process begins with the people who have the most rights to the common agreeing to divide it up into separate freeholds proportionate to their rights, the rights that they have in it. And with the agreement of many of those concerned and the blessing of the parson and the patron of the living and all those they can persuade, they appoint people to measure everything and bring a bill to parliament to authorize the sharing out in law. And that's, you know, I like, you know, sounds like a fair process, right? It does. D dividing things up proportionately according to rights. This this sounds like democracy. This sounds like a subject for Stephen Maturin. Right. So he, he chimes in here. After all, he says, the country is run on those lines. The majority is always right. And those who do not like it may lump it. An expression I heard in the mouth of an officer leading a press gang when one of the captives expostulated with him. <laughs> Yeah, more, as you say, Mike, more shades of grey here. Oh, very good. Uh, Jack says, well, it would be fair if it were like a jury or a vestry where every man has a voice and where all the others know him and value his opinion according to his reputation. But he's here not talking about the, the majority on authority or connection, but he's talking about majority based purely on shares held and, and measured by value, not one man, one vote. And he goes on to describe what this would mean in the context of the enclosure of Simmons Lee and this guy Griffiths. Griffiths is a newcomer, but he holds 10,000 pounds of holdings. Meanwhile, Harding and all his relations in their farms and cottages, acquired and owned and grown over centuries, have perhaps two or 300 pounds each in holdings. There are other big men in the neighborhood, like Jack's cousin Brampton, who would also quite like to round out their farms where the commons run deep into them. So he says it's easy for a man with a fair-sized estate like Griffiths to persuade 
cottagers, semi-literate cottagers, to sign a piece of paper or to make their mark on a piece of paper that ultimately has the effect of taking away the shares that they hold in the common. And this has already reached a certain point in the process here with Simmons-Lee. Griffiths' bill to enclose Simmons-Lee has been read twice in Parliament. Nobody was paying attention. It's been referred to a committee, the committee that Jack has mentioned already. When it gets its third reading after the committee stage, it will become law. And it's Jack's intention to speak before the committee and do whatever he can to prevent the committee from approving this enclosure. How are you going to do that, asks Stephen. Well, he says, if the, my shares in the common aren't enough to overcome the majority voting for enclosure, then I can still make that majority very small and maybe with the votes and the positions finally balanced, I can turn the scale against them. And, and Mike, this sounds like Jack Aubrey hoping for a frigate-on-frigate frigate action with a ne nearly equal weight of metal so that seamanship and tactics can just win the day. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah, he's thinking, you know, uh, you know, I'll use my position. We'll be so close. I'll use my position, like you say. You know, I'll be the captain. We'll win here. And Stephen is is kind of confused. He says, "Well, well, Jack, you know, you're a post captain, and that's a wonderful thing, your position. But isn't Griffiths also a post captain and with greater seniority? He's kind mm. of thinking, how is your position going to outweigh his? Jack says, "Well, yes, Griffiths is, but Griffiths is not the lord of the manor, and Jack is." And Stephen's kind of flabbergasted. He's like the Lord of the Manor. I didn't even know those were still around. Isn't isn't it like the old ancient thing when you know the, the Lord had the right to sleep with the bride of any of their vassals on their wedding night and had their own gallows to dispense justice? And and it's it's interesting. You know, we 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 talk about this the you know the droit de seigneur this uh, disagreement. Uh, can sleep with the brides of the vassals on the on their wedding night. And and actually in all of our research, I think we kind of came up and said, well, it's kind of referred to as the 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 alleged or uh, you know, it's you know, we couldn't really find any primary evidence that says, you know, it actually took place. However, we know where it's referred to in lots of works of fiction, including O'Brien's favorite opera, The Marriage of Figaro, which might be exactly why Stephen says, ah, oh, oh, you're the Lord of the Matter. Well, you would have this right here. <laughs> Stephen's definitely yeah. a Figaro fan here. So uh, it's part two of I, I think Jack, you know, is sort of shaking his head, smiling inwardly to himself, you know, didn't know this existed, thinks it's about this. And, you know, Jack uh, you know, is Again, O'Brien points out, you know, kind of you know, dumbfounded by the extent of Stephen's ignorance by land as well as by sea. You know, smartest guy <laughs> he knows, but still sometimes. Yeah. Very good. And Jack, having dropped into the conversation that his, his one edge over uh, Griffiths is that he's Lord of the Manor, then downplays it again, say, well, it doesn't amount to very much else these days. After all the modern passion, as he calls it, for paring down and changing for the sake of change. He describes how there are courts and these manor courts um, have left the occasional escheat. That's to say the, the instance of a property falling into the hands of the Lord of the Manor when it uh, when somebody dies without an heir. And he says, therefore, that the title of Lord of the Manor still has a certain standing. It's rare for a committee to go against the opposition of the Lord of the Manor. And there, there are some other privileges. Jack gets to open the fair in the dripping pan, which is a local field, stick a pin in the dripping pan. Um, he gets to kick the first football of the season, bowl the first cricket ball, unless he's at sea. And uh, as they're walking along there, Jack shows Stephen the field where the fair is held 
on Old Lammas Day, complete with the camel, complete with bearded lady, and complete with, stick a pin in this, boxing booths, wherein our lads get finely battered by knowing old bruisers from Plymouth. Okay, there's going to be a reason why we get to think about bruisers and battering, but we'll come back to that later in the chapter. Jack wants to walk across here to show Stephen something that he says may please him in Wilcombe's southern pasture. And there are a couple of things that we're going to see that are going to please Stephen. Um, Stephen says, well, they do have wheat ears here, and we'll, we'll come to wheat ears in a second. Meanwhile, a wood pigeon flies up overhead, and after all the bad luck that everybody's had with rabbits, um, Jack says, that's your bird, Stephen. Stephen says, not at all. Jack takes the shot. He's finally glad that he's hit something and says, this is one of the Dois de Seigneur, one of the Lord's still extant rights. Only the Lord of the Manor can shoot on his own land, but he can give friends and others that he wants to uh, a deputation. But Mike, I, I hear another bird metaphor coming here. What's with the wheat ears? Yeah, the wheat ears. You know, you know, Stephen, you know, when Stephen pointed them out, you know, Jack had said, you know, well, yeah, they're here, but they'll soon be gone just like us. And, uh, mm. you know, wheat ears are interesting. The name has nothing to do with wheat or with ears. Right. <laughs> it's, it's derived from an old name, uh, which means essentially white ass. And it's a bit of folk etymology. So these are essentially birds named by the commoners, by the way, they used to describe them there. And that what they're talking about is that while these birds are kind of indistinct on the ground, when they fly up, they have a white rump with a black T on the shape of its tail here. So um, it is a testament to named by the commoners, known by the commoners, and they do come and go. They're another migratory bird here. So it, you know, it's a great one to bring to mind that Stephen and Jack have to soon be flying on their own here. Very good. They're walking along, talking. They come to the end of the commons at the fence, as you mentioned, Ian, at Jack's southern pasture. And and Jack says uh, he hopes that this little, you know, seeing this little stretch of Simmons Lee commons gives Stephen an idea. Stephen jumps right in and says, oh, it has. It's given him a wonderful idea. It's delightful landscapes, got a great diversity of birds. I'm sure he changes through the season. And Jack continues his original thought. He says he hopes it's given him an idea of what the commoners are signing away. And O'Brien writes, Jack says, you may say they do not value the beauty. Stephen says, I say nothing of the kind, would scorn it. And Jack says, but they do value the grazing, the fuel, the litter for their beasts, the thatch, and the hundred little things the common can provide. To say nothing of fish, particularly eels, the rabbits, the odd hare, and a few of Griffith's pheasants. Harding does not see them so long as it's villagers and on a decent scale. So hmm. again, this is Jack and now through Jack's keeper Harding saying, yeah, you know, we're kind of helping people out here and this is really important to them. And again, O'Brien so beautifully as an example says, ah, this woman is coming up. Uh, she's dressed in a man's very old coat and gloves. She's leading an ass that's pulling a sledge that's piled high with Furs. And she's cut it, you know, Stephen can tell, all by herself. She greets Captain Jack, sends her regards for his good lady. Jack has already called her by name, Mrs. Harris, let me get the gate for you, you know, has asked her how she does. And this is a great example of a commoner living off the commons and the regard that she holds Jack in and the respect that he has for her. It kind of reminds me of the way that Jack wants to know every person's name on yeah. the ship. 
and a little bit about them here. And this thing that she's gathering, there's a lot of furs, ulex, gorse, when it's a genus of flowering plants, of thorny evergreen shrubs, Eurasian. Uh, they're closely related to brooms, but thornier. And they're, they're very yellow flowering plants. They grow in droughts very well. They can survive fires. They grow where other plants don't. They serve as hedgerows. They're chopped and fed to cattle, sheep, and goats. They're burned in baker's ovens. They're used to uh, roof outbuildings, line field drains, harrow crops, keep haystacks off the ground, clean chimneys, dye socks, even dye Easter eggs. <laughs> and it's a great example of what so many of us would call just a troublesome weed. But as the Irish Times has pointed out, you know, it's something that's been put to great use over the centuries, especially on a common like this one by commoners. Great. Nice to see a, a living example of how the countryside works, just as Stephen and Jack are passing. Fancy O'Brien being able to invent that for us. That's great. Now, we've heard Jack talking about the principles of this idea of enclosure and the potential injustice that there is here. And Stephen weighs in with his own thoughts. He's been thinking about Jack's words. He says they are words about the nature of the majority. Your strangely violent, radical even, forgive me, democratic words, which with their treasonable implication of one man, one vote, might be interpreted as an attack on the sacred rights of property. And I can almost hear the sarcasm and the needle in Stephen's voice here, having good fun at the expense of his friend. He goes on, I should like to know how you reconcile these views with your support of a Tory ministry in the House. And Jack, this, this bounces right off Jack. He says, well, it's easy. It's, it's a matter of scale and circumstance. And I love the view that Jack has here. First of all, he points out what he sees as the main flaw in one man, one vote based democracy. He says, everyone knows that on a large scale, democracy is pernicious nonsense. A country or even a county cannot be run by a self-seeking parcel of tub-thumping politicians working on popular emotion, rousing the mob. No, 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 no. <laughs> the 20th and 21st centuries stayed well clear of all of that, didn't they, Mike? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Right, right. Yeah. As, as I'm sitting here the, with the next U.S. presidential election already beginning, a few years hence yeah. here. Yeah, yeah I'm glad we've all realized that. <laughs> grab yourself a tub and thump it. No, he says. His immediate counterexample is a man of war. He says, a man of war requires autocracy. Look at what happened to the French Navy after the revolution. We, we heard about that as well from uh, Olivier Aronda a few uh, months ago. We probably also can remember, can't we, how Dutour had fared as a democratically self-imposed leader of a bunch of seamen aboard the, uh, the Franklin. Stephen says that he himself knows too much of the sea to suppose a literal democracy would take place on a ship of a line or even in a small rowboat. And he's trying to emphasize for Jack's fun and benefit here just what a sea dog Stephen has managed to become. And Jack goes on to express actually quite a nuanced position, having made the main point against democracy, which as Winston Churchill once quoted is that it's the, the worst of all systems except for all the others that have ever been tried. Right. He says, at, at the other end of the scale, although one man, one vote certainly smells of brimstone and the gallows, everyone has always accepted it in a jury trying a man for his life. An enclosure belongs to this scale. It too decides men's lives. So Jack's got a carefully thought out reason why absolute democracy per head, per person, is important when the scale is right. 
And it turns out that the rest of the world disagreed with him about democracy on a large scale. And it's been done as mostly okay, I would say, in the 20th and 21st centuries. But he's got a really, really good point here about the the, the consequences for immediate decision-making for things that are intimate and important for communities. And he had realized this when he returned after Griffiths and his friends had persuaded Jack's father, desperate for money, to join them in enclosing Wolcombe Common. So this enclosure that had already taken place, Wolcombe Common had 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 effects that Jack had already seen. And he had the chance to think about what the, what the decision-making process had led to. Wilcom, he said, was not as glorious as Simmons Lee, but when I saw it, all cleared, flattened, drained, fenced, and exploited to the last half bushel of wheat, with many of the small encroachments ploughed up and the cottages destroyed, and the remaining commoners, with half of their living and all their joy quite gone, reduced to anxious cap-in-hand casual labourers, it hurts my heart. And this is the juxtaposition versus the, yes, it's generally economically sensible at the beginning of this little section here, down to actually at the human scale, it has massive injustice at its heart. He said he had grown up with many of these commoners back in his wild days after his mother had died. These were people he'd known all of his life. They were at the mercy, he says, of landlords, farmers, and God help us, parish officers for poor relief. It hurts him so badly to see that he can hardly bring himself to go there anymore. He says he won't let the same thing happens to Simmons Lee if he can prevent it. The old ways, he said, had disadvantages, of course, but here, and I speak only of what I know, it was a human life, and the people knew its ways and customs through and through. And here's a moment for the two friends to, to coincide and to agree. Stephen says he is entirely of Jack's way of thinking, and he's rarely seen such deep emotion in his friend Jack. So, Mike, here we are at the heart of the chapter. Stephen and Jack have walked part of the way around the common here in search of rabbits uh, and the occasional bird. We've got more bird metaphors to come. We've got more about enclosures and property and rights and customs. But perhaps this is a good time for a break. What do you think? Oh, yeah, absolutely. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. Well, I hope you've had a good break here. I hope you've, uh, as, as we'll talk about in a little bit, had a little audit ale maybe, and uh, you're ready for another bird metaphor. Let's go. As they walk along, Jack points out a worry angle, saying that Harding had shown him to George just the day before. And so this is the same bird that Harding had shown Jack when he was a youngster here. So we got a little bit of this continuity. Stephen says, well, he's a fine fowl, and he's rarely seen so fine a specimen as the one that Jack is pointing to now. Stephen says, well, some people call him a butcher bird. He has horrible ways. And then he catches himself, says, but but who are we to be prating? So I think when we talked about Warry Angles, you know, a, a chapter or so back, we didn't talk about the fact that they're carnivorous. Actually, yeah. their Latin name means sort of sentinel or watchman butcher. So it, they have these two practices. Sentinels, they stand high in treetops or on poles to sit and watch for prey, the sentinels. And as Stephen said, they're also known 
as butchers for their practice of storing food animals such as young stoats or birds or rodents, lizards, frogs, toads, bats, fish, by impaling them on thorns or barbed wire and then ripping them into bite-sized pieces with their beaks here. You know, they've actually been seen skinning toads, ripping open their back skin, pulling the skin up over their heads to avoid the meat becoming contaminated by the toxic skin secretions. So it's uh, fascinating here to learn more about these birds, but also, Stephen pointing it out is kind of in keeping with Jack's description about what happens with some enclosures, how yeah. man and beast are not that different. As Stephen says, you know, the butcher birds, horrible ways, but who are we to be prating? <laughs> we have our own. Oh. And it's, it's funny, we, we started out with, with big picture. We started out with history. And we've talked about rights and customs, and we've talked about enclosure, and we've talked about the personal scale, and we're going to bring it right down to the individual now. Because way back a few paragraphs ago, Jack said he had something he wanted to show Stephen. And I I really love this next part. Uh, They take a turn. They see the house far off to the left. They see uh, a fine clover and grass meadow. And in the middle, next to a thatched shelter, is a horse grazing, and Stephen is completely taken aback. Oh, oh, he says, and then, Lala, Lala, a kushla. A kushla meaning darling in Irish, the pulse of my heart, where we remember Lala from the Commodore. She was the only one of Diana's Arabians that Stephen had been able to find. He de- described her as the most affectionate and intelligent horse. Uh, we remember the uh, endearment a kushla, which I think we've already said comes up as well in the real heartbreaking movie, uh, Million Dollar Baby with Hilary Swank and uh, Clint Eastwood. But anyway, Lala Akushla, Lala, my darling. Lala is also very taken with this encounter. She whinnies and runs, jumps off the rail, comes over to Stephen, puts her head on his shoulder against his cheek, and together they walk off toward the house. And Mike, this is a very, very touching moment, I guess, especially from a, from a horse-loving perspective. Oh yeah, 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 and, and you know, I'm I'm a big Arabian fan, so I can I can ah, absolutely see this. This is and this is this is Annie's horse in like triplicate. <laughs> oh, wonderful, wonderful. Well, Stephen, he says, had not realised that Jack was keeping Lala at Wolcombe, and the the reason being, as Jack explains, that there's an admiral who's renting out Ashgrove. He's inclined to spoil a horse's mouth and temper um, when riding. So Jack had brought Lala over when they had left Ashgrove. Uh, especially once the first case was decided against him and the Ritz came in, he needed to get out of Ashgrove, come over to Wilcombe. He brought Lala with him. Living in Wilcombe costs him nothing. The farm provides most of what they can eat, at least as long as Jack can manage to find um, a rabbit in the sights of his gun. And the Admiral is paying a handsome rent for Ashgrove. So so back again to this theme, Mike, that they're, they're on their uppers, but there's enough around them to support them. And as they walk, the goat the goat that had found Lala in the Commodore in that scary scene involving Stephen riding past the gallows. This goat comes closer, but is wary of the two men and of the dog. Now, we go back again, Mike, into this conversation, this exploration about the customs and the rights and the traditions around landholding and commoners. Stephen says, well, in in this situation of enclosure, which is about to happen uh, for Simmons Lee, unless Jack can do something about it, how about compensation? Isn't there some means by which the commoners get something back in return for the loss of their rights? And Jack says, well, that is so in theory, as long as, especially if the commissioners are compassionate people, and if the 
people themselves, the commoners, can show proof, legal proof of their claim. And even if they do get an allotment in that case, in some kind of freehold, it's going to be small. On Simmons Lee, he says, a man with two shares might get three quarters of an acre. But that's not enough to keep a cow, not enough to keep half a dozen sheep and a small flock of geese. Free-ranging rights on the common would let one man, in common with others, keep that kind of livestock that would allow him to maintain a living and have some produce to sell. The allotments that get given out in these compensatory cases are often in small pieces. They're far apart, and they often have provisions requiring that the poor freeholder now has to do their own onerous work to enclose and drain this new little broken-up chunk of land that they've been granted. A poor man can't afford that, so he will then likely sell his holding for £5 or so. And this is somebody then who's taken a, a small holding earned over centuries that might, in theory, have been worth a couple of hundreds, is reduced to selling it for a handful of pounds, so then for the whole of his living, says Jack, he must rely on wages if he can get them. He's completely in the farmer's hands. Yeah. And it just struck me, Ian, that you know this thing with Lala and Jack recognizing what would happen with her with the Admiral and bringing her along is also Jack looking at the commoners and realizing what will happen and trying to bring them yeah. along. I, I, you know, I just love how this thing gets so personalized and it keeps coming in and how (laughs) O'Brien in traditional fashion, you know, goes, Oh my gosh, you know, I'm I'm so taken right now and I'm really concerned. And now we have to have a little break in the action, which Stephen can provide. So Stephen now smells (laughs) that the goat has joined them. And he asked Jack, you know, can, can I break off into little parentheses here and tell you an anecdote from some of my time in Catalonia? And Jack says, well, certainly. Stephen says, well, he was walking with an English soldier and an Austrian medical man. They were talking. They had just gone into town, bought a you know a nice cold drink. And Stephen's German wasn't very good. The Austrian medical man's English was not very good. So they usually spoke in Latin. But because the English soldier's there, they're trying to speak in English. And the Austrian tells them about a pale bearded ghost that he just met coming down the hill. And the, the, you know, the English officer is shocked. A ghost in broad daylight? The doctor says, yes, he was quite pale. And a man was leading him with a string. And, and Stephen's saying, I, you know, I wish I could convey the contrast here between Smith's amazed solemnity merging into deep suspicion and leaving cheerful face, casual tone, and evident pleasure in his ice-cold drink. (laughs) Jack is amused here. You know, this sounds like a Jack-like story here. And he asks if the soldier smoked it in time. And Stephen says, well, he never smoked it. And when Stephen explained it later, he got angry. And then he says, well, you know, Jack, that's the end of my parentheses. Pray, you know, please continue telling me about this sad subject of enclosures. And so, you know, you always have to ask, you know, Okay, so a little humor to break this up, but why this goat ghost story now? Maybe it's an interesting way to point out that Jack, because he grew up with the people of the commons, knows their language, knows their lives, and you know, just like he knows his crew because his his time before the mask, you know, maybe you know he knows this in a way that the more privileged admiral and Griffins do not, and they yeah. may not smoke it in time. I, I don't know. What do you think, Ian? It could be. could be. Because everything else in this chapter is a metaphor pointing towards the situation that, uh, that Jack is in with uh, with Griffiths and the other landowners. Uh, it could also be that O'Brien was simply thinking, 
we've had quite a lot of thoughtful and quite serious exposition. It's high time somebody broke in with a joke. Who better to break in with a joke than Stephen? Because Stephen's been building up this this role reversal of his. He's becoming the the salty sea dog who can now make a pun. And what better subject for a general purpose Patrick O'Brien joke than a goat? Because we've been having goat jokes ever since Master and Commander, right? <laughs> <laughs> Too true. Well, now that we've had a little chortle about people totally failing to get the goat joke, um, we get back onto the subject of landowners. Are they all then as potentially bad and pernicious as Griffiths? And Jack says, well, there there may be some good ones. As uh, I think Stephen once said to an American, there are are some good Englishmen, you know. (laughs) Jack says, well, there there are some good conscientious landowners who will try to make sure that when an enclosure happens, the commoners are no worse off than they were, as far as that's possible. There are men, he says, who don't take advantage of cottagers' ignorance, don't take advantage of their lack of papers to prove their case. They don't include clauses in the Act requiring fencing and hedging and draining. But, he says, Griffiths and his friends want all they can get and, says Jack, be damned to the means. Be damned to the means. And what they and the bigger farms hate is the possibility of the labourers growing saucy as they call it, asking for higher wages, for a wage that keeps up with the price of corn, refusing to work if they don't get it, and falling back on what they can wring from the common. No common, no sauciness. And Mike, this is dead on time here. A couple of decades later, there were big disputes around the ownership and the rights and the job security of people working in rural settings. The famous case of the toll puddle martyrs was in about 1830, I think. So Mm. we're pretty close to the time when this social issue started to really surface uh, its head in kind of public discourse here. I tell you, with with the incredible ramping inflation, with the, uh, you know, as as we watch kind of what the real wages have been over the past 40 years or so on this side, you know, I've, I, it, once again, O'Brien is ringing out to me here. Yeah, yeah. No commons, well, no sauciness. Yeah, and just yeah. Remind yourself when you're reading the paper tomorrow that all the sauciness is down to the absence of common ownership. Exactly. Well, so the lane narrows. They're walking along. They're now kind of walking in single file here, and Stephen all of a sudden just starts talking about the advantages of sea life, like for example, freedom of speech. He says, you know, when we're in the cabin, we're in the balcony behind it, we can say whatever we want to say. And on land, you have to be discreet because of servants and loved ones and visitors. And he says, well, you know, I can't really do sullen reading in a house. There are too many interruptions, movements, doors opening and closing, apologies. Oh, my God, whispers and, you know, and mealtimes. He says, I can only swim deeply in a book at sea. Like I recently read all of Josephus, you know, on our last cruise here. Uh, He says, I wasn't bothered by the howling of mariners, the motion of the sea and the elements. They are nothing compared with domestic incursions. He says, on shore, in the midst of this domesticity, he's telling Jack about his recent experience, mere newspapers, gazettes, periodical publications, all light, frothy, fair, apart from the proceedings, have imperceptibly drunk the whole of my time and energy. Stephen here. He's found the 19th century version of scrolling on social media. Oh, love it. Stephen, the doom scroller. Exactly. If if only he knew what was coming. Yeah, right, right. Oh, Stephen, beware, beware. You know, and I I can't help but wonder if this isn't meant to convey that people 
like what they're used to. Yeah. You know, for Stephen to say, oh, yeah, we talk completely freely at sea when we know that, you know, at sea, virtually everything that gets said in the yeah. cabin is heard by everybody and known by the rest of the ship in, you know, in a very short order, or that it's quieter at sea in the gales with everything going on than it is in the empty wing of a great house. You know, these things seem just kind of ridiculous until we take into account that people, people like what they get used to. Mm. Uh, Josephus that Stephen mentioned reading, he was of royal descent, but he was a strongly pro-Roman Pharisee, you know, good Jew, but hey, like the Romans here. But then he got used to the Jewish leaders of Judea and fought against the Roman legions. Well, the Roman legions won. And once again, he grew closer to his Latin leadership. He actually took the, you know, the part of the emperor's family name, added it to his own family name here. So Josephus, you know, while it could be this great Jewish historian, Jewish Roman historian, also this idea of, yeah, yeah, we kind of go along to get along. We're kind of like what we're used to. And these commoners like what they're used to. Yeah, (laughs) for sure. Well, that's a chance for us to step uh, half a step back and ask about what else is going on around Jack and the commoners and the the family here. Stephen realizes, because he's channeling the spirit of Patrick O'Brien, that we're three quarters of the way through the chapter and we haven't mentioned ships yet. So he he turns Jack's attention with a question about Lord Stranrock, the admiral who is commanding the breast blockade. And Jack says that, like his nephew Griffiths, Nephew Griffiths. Oh, okay. Jack says, like his nephew Griffiths, he's an agricultural sailor stuffed with high farming theory. But unlike Griffiths, he, Lord Stranra, is a pretty good sailor. He's a taut commander, apt to bark and to bite on occasion. And recognizing Stranra as the name of a town on the west coast of Scotland, Stephen asks whether the title, the peerage that Lord Stranra holds, is Scottish like the name. Jack says, no, actually, the, the title, the peerage of Lord Stranra is English from the time of William III, Dutch William, as he's often called. This is the Protestant Prince William Henry of Orange, who in the Glorious Revolution was invited by the Whig opponents of King James II to come and invade England in the Glorious Bloodless Revolution of 1689. Bizarre how we have revolutions here in England, <laughs> politely and quietly organized and then denied that they ever happened. So this Admiral, with this Scottish but English title, clearly in in favour in general of economies of scale, paints him clearly, and and Jack owns it to us as a Whig, nonetheless a moderate Whig, who sometimes votes against the the currently Tory controlled ministry, but is always with them on important divisions and therefore is much courted. He's one of these kind of cross-bench, across-the-aisle kind of individuals. Stranra even so disliked Jack Aubrey because of the actions of Jack's father a while ago who had once flogged a Whig opposition candidate. I'm, like, I'm pretty sure that flogging and, uh, and, and general rambunctiousness with regard to other candidates is something that was not unknown to Lord Cochrane in his parliamentary career. But right. <laughs> I, I can't quite remember the details here. Admiral Stranra doesn't object to Griffiths always voting with the government. Um, the Admiral also dislikes Jack for taking parliamentary leave, which requires a jobbing captain to take his place aboard the Bellona. And the Admiral will dislike Jack even more for being against the enclosure scheme, which the Admiral strongly advised on in the first place. So there's a little bit of tension here, not for the first time, between 
an, an admiral someplace and a subordinate of the admirals called Aubrey. Mike, we've we've learned here about the naval context for Jack and the potentially uncertain relationship with his superior officer. We, we get on to more about the Navy and the service life, don't we, in, in, with this conversation with Stephen? Yeah, Stephen's kind of fascinating. You know, he says, you know, I've noticed that there are many clans in the service. Of course, they're, they're political divisions. There are also, yeah. you know, men like Jack devoted to celestial navigations. There are others who delight in surveying everything and anything, you know, no matter how wet and remote. But it's the first time Stephen says he's ever heard of a band of seagoing farmers. And he says he's, he looks forward to meeting the Admiral. Well, Jack adds, well, you know, talking about clans here, there are also chains of kindness and connection. He says, Lord Keith was really good to me when I was young, so that I do all I can for Lord Keith's mids or his officer's sons. Jack explains, some ships have almost all their men from the same region. And he adds, I knew one sloop whose captain hailed from the Isle of Man, and close on every hand had three legs. <laughs> With little little bit of Jack humor here, you know, as, as many of our listeners may know, the flag of the Isle of Man, or the flag of man, uh, has a triskeleton. It's, it's three armored legs with golden spurs interconnected on a red background. Maybe we can throw a picture of that out on social media here. Um, so that joke aside, Jack tells Stephen, well, you know, you're going to meet the Admiral soon enough. We actually need to be aboard within the next two weeks. He says, there's just time for me to head down to London for the committee meeting, deliver my Thunderbolt, and post up to Torbay, where Hennage Dundas will deliver Jenkins, the Bolognese jobbing captain. And Stephen can tell by the way Jack talks about Jenkins that he doesn't think very highly of him. Jack says he's actually been expecting a signal the last three days. So maybe this departure is even more imminent. Wow. And, and, and we were beginning to wonder, right? Like we were beginning to wonder how long were we going to stay in the farm here with Sophie and Clarissa and Diana and the children. Speaking of which, at this point, George and Bridget the young Aubrey and the young Maturin burst out of the bushes. And I'm very, very happy that the two families, the kids of the two families are playmates now. I think it's a really happy thing. George tells Jack, tells his father, that there's an express from Plymouth. And Bridget tells Stephen the same story, but with a great Irish influence. And we enjoyed Stephen's Irish usage at the end of the Commodore. And here we've got Bridget in the same Irish flow. Oh, Papa, cried Bridget, there is a man on a steaming horse, and he destroyed with the thirst, bearing a letter. So he is an express letter. Mama carries it in her hand itself, driving the great coach. Beautiful. Um, George, meanwhile, weighs in and says that Cousin Diana, as he calls her, is coming with a letter to pick them all up. And Bridget turns to Stephen and says, Papa dear, can I ride? She wants to ride on the back top part of the coach with Padine on the way home. And Papa Stephen says, this is only okay if Mummy agrees. She, he says, is the master and commander of the coach. Nice. Yeah, stick stick a pin in that. (laughs) (laughs) The kids ride on Lala. It's very sweet that this is the little family unit here together. And Lala, this beloved horse, is now the the mount for, for George and for Bridget here. And off they go down the lane until they reach a broader part where the coach is there waiting. And Diana calls out to Jack. She's got this express from Plymouth. And Jack offers to turn the coach around, to help her to turn the coach around. She says, Lord, no. She's, as we know, a famous hand with a coach and four. And asks Bridget to take the letter to Jack and pointing out that in the way that Jack is her cousin. Are you my cousin, sir? Asks the child 
as Diana turned the horses in her usual brilliant manner. I am so glad. Nice. And again, apart from the the, the, the peculiar niceness of it, this is the child who a few chapters ago towards the end of the previous book was locked in a an almost autistic world of you know, n- not relating to the world and not forming relationships with people. And here she is saying, I'm so glad that you're my cousin. And I'm so glad that she's she's on the way here. Back at home, Jack tells Sophie that this letter, this express from Plymouth, is from Hennage, from Hennage Dundas. He's brought his ship in for repairs. He and Philip, Jack's half-brother, are coming to stay at Wilcombe on Thursday. More good news for Sophie. More guests to feed. <laughs> and then finally, after... Hennage and Philip do arrive on Thursday. We get this little scene here where instead of Mr. Chumley, that's Diana's cousin's coachman, coming to pick up the horses, Mr. Chumley himself and a friend arrive to ask a favor from Diana. Can she look after the horses and the coach for a little while longer? And everybody's looking after each other. Jack's taking care of them out of his own pocket, taking care of the horses. And after a shorter time than it seemed, Chumley and his friend stand up to take their leave and we get Chumley giving a particularly civil farewell to Dr. Maturin. And afterwards, the men comment on how they found him agreeable, but a bit of a dandy. And the women are convinced that he admires Diana extremely. And Mike, I'm a little bit disheartened by this. It's just a couple of chapters ago that we were, yeah, Stephen and Diana back together again. But now we're asking ourselves, hmm, is, is there another man, a good-looking land-based horse-owning man who's going to be a rival for Diana's attentions here? Oh, no, please, no, please, no. Well, after Chumley leaves, you know, everybody kind of settles down to enjoy these few last days ashore. Hennage and Jack spend a lot of time hunting together. Hennage tells him all about the merchantmen that had hit his ship stern in a thick fog. Um, Philip takes care of Bridget and George. He's showing them all around the house and grounds where he grew up, kind of, you know, again, this echo of Jack growing up there. Uh, and sometimes Stephen goes riding with Diana. He admires her driving. You know, it says her team is soon going to be the best in the county. But as the text says, her concentration on speed distressed him. You know, the coach was not only way too fast to view the wildlife, uh, but he also can't get Diana kind of interested in in some of the wildlife like the shrews that uh, you know he's presently studying. And he finds that he can't get Bridget's interest either because she's running around with George and Philip here. Well, Diana spends a lot of time taking the women out in the coach, but Sophie, of course, never goes farther than the village for shopping. She, it says, doesn't like her fast driving either. Stephen isn't too disappointed. You know, he thinks, you know, when we get, you know, war's over, Catalonia, I'll spend a lot more time with Diana and Bridget, and there's lots more species to look at there. It'll be spring. There'll be great botany here. But he takes his time wandering alone, like when he was a boy, looking at wildlife. He's reading in the library, and he finds himself dividing a lot of time between two of the local houses there, the Hand and Racket and the Aubrey Arms on the green. He's watching agricultural life and sipping audit ale. Very nice ale. Very bucolic. (laughs) Yeah. The people know he's Captain Jack's surgeon, and they sometimes come around for a whispered consultation, and they know that he, like Captain Jack, is on their side, so they don't conceal their opinions from him. And they also appreciate that he divides his custom between these two houses and avoids the goat encompasses, which the text says 
is a more pretentious place run by one of Griffin's partisans. Mm. Ooh, well, we, we've had the whole chapter to figure out what we think of Griffiths, and it hasn't changed a whit, has it? <laughs> no, 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 no. And and now politics is determining where we go shop. Hmm, yeah. <laughs> well, the the people to be found in these public houses are generally opposed to enclosures. They hate Griffiths. They hate his bullying gamekeepers. Uh, they don't like the new tenants that he settled on Wilcombe Common, where it's been enclosed. They love Captain Aubrey. There's a pub named after Captain Aubrey nearby. But they anxiously doubt that he'll be able to prevent the destruction of Simmons Lee and their way of life. And Stephen gets his own picture of the local people's opinion here. He tours the common and the village with old Harding, the gamekeeper, who introduces him to each small holding and each cottage. These have been owned for a very, very long time, but often with, without formal evidence of title, without a written grant. And the text says that both Harding and Stephen knew too much about the squalor, dirt, idleness, petty thieving, cruelty, frequent drunkenness, and not uncommon incest that could occur to have any idyllic notion of a poor person's life in the country. But, said Harding, it is what we are used to, as you said, Mike, just a few paragraphs ago. It is what we're used to, and with all its plagues, it is better than being on the parish or having to go round to farmer's back door begging for a day's work and being turned away. No, it ain't all beer and skittles, but with the common, a man is at least half his own man. And without the common, he is the farmer's dog. And mm. that is why we're so main fond of Captain Jack. Amen. Well put. Now, as the day for the committee's meeting in London gets nearer... People are becoming less kind and civil to each other. There's shouting. There's expression of contrary views in public, especially in public places like these pubs here. There's jostling and harsh words even among cousins as the village fills with ill feeling and the potential for violence. And on this particular moment, Stephen hears Jack coming down the street trying to find Bondon. One of Captain Dundas's men, it turns out, had taken Bondon into the Goat and Compasses. That's the one run by one of Griffiths' partisans, to look at the pretty barmaid. Just then, Bondon and Dundas's men are thrown out of the goat encompasses by a hostile band led by Griffiths' head gamekeeper. What the devil is this? roared Captain Aubrey. Belay there. Do you hear me there? If you want a proper mill, have a proper mill, not a goddamn pothouse brawl. The gamekeeper was in too scarlet a passion to answer coherently, but his long, thin neighbour, Griffiths' clerk, said, Well, by all means, sir, whenever you choose, Wednesday evening in the dripping pan for a ten-pound purse, if your man will stand. Bondon nodded contemptuously. Very well, said Jack. Now get you home. Not another word, or I shall commit you for a breach of the peace. End of chapter two. Whoa. Wow. So it's not theory, all this enclosures and rights and customs and privileges and antagonism. It's not just before a committee. It's it's right here and it's turning into a fray here in Wilcombe. Can you can you imagine, you know, kind of politics having that influence right there in the neighborhood? Amazing. Ah, who, who, who could think? Yeah. And, and, you know, what a, uh, you know, this whole idea of art for art's sake, 
you know, art without reference to morality. Well, we've got quite the morality tale playing out here, you know, and Jack kind of playing against his landed gentry class here, sounding a little bit more like the egalitarian Stephen Matron. You know, I was really fascinated by the depth of Jack's thinking on democracy and governance. There's a lot more nuance than I think I remember in the young Jacques Aubrey early in the canon here, you know, Uh, uh, but it's kind of nice as we see Jack and Stephen mature, as we see them, you know, come closer together on some things, as we find them, you know, interacting with each other and, and pulling the details out here like that. I like it. I like it. it. It's fascinating as well that this bit of exposition about the, the problem with the small holdings has brought, brought us to what you might call an inciting event. But it's, it's not an inciting event to do with a conflict between Jack and Griffiths. It's not even an inciting right. event to do with the conflict between the Admiral and Jack. It's a conflict between Bondon and Griffiths's gamekeeper. So just out of the, the latent hostility and the latent aggra- aggravation that there is in the neighborhood, these two people are going to fight. And it, it almost feels like the, the end of the first act or even the first scene of an opera, right? Okay, there right. we've had the peasants and we've had the conversation between the principals and now fight breaks out and there's going to be a, a showdown. And um, yeah, we've got to wonder. We had the reference earlier on to local men being taken apart by knowing old bruises from Plymouth. So... Fights often end up being a fight between, you know, a, 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 a patsy and an expert. And we've got to wonder, like, Bondon's a champion boxer in the Navy, but who right. is this guy that he's going to fight? Who's going to be the patsy? Who's going to be the champion? Yeah, yeah. And and it's funny, you know, it, we've got all this stuff going on with enclosures. We've got now this tension in the village. We've got this fight coming up. And, you know, I'm, I'm almost kind of swept by because I was I was having such a great time seeing Jack and Stephen both ashore, spending time, you know, their families are reunited. We're over a lot of that. But now, as we said in chapter one, there was so much, you know, they've lost their fortunes here. Um, and, and it's kind of, you know, I still love seeing them together. I, I suspect yeah. that the loss of fortune is a little harder on Jack and Sophie than on Stephen and Diana. And, and I love the way Sophie has suggested the sale of Ashgrove, the way she's hosting all these people with little money and little help. Um, but I, I, I'd love to know a little bit more about what's going on here. Like you said, we've got this now reference to a little tension with Diana and yeah. Shumley, her cousin. And I, I, I kind of just wanted to put a plug for the chapter in here, too. There was just so much to cover that we yeah. missed a little bit of the catch up with the kids, some of the more detailed description of country life. So by, by all means, go back and pick up a deeper read. And if you want to hear Bridget doing more Irish, oh my gosh, there's lots. Oh, there's lots great. To she's there. great. Yeah. So um, Bondon lined up to fight this gamekeeper guy. That doesn't mean that Jack's scot-free. He's, he seems to be doing his career no favors in setting himself right. up to be a bit of a, an antagonist to Admiral Stranra, certainly an antagonist to his neighbor Griffiths, getting involved in these neighborhood scraps as well. There are tensions high over this enclosure issue all around the village, Jack and Stephen could be called back at any moment to go back aboard the Bellona. And where's that going to leave Bondon? Where's that going to leave Jack before the committee? Where's that going to leave the enclosure? This is not a great time to have them leaving. But maybe you think, maybe it's the lesser of two evils. Maybe getting Jack out of the situation and back to sea might stop Jack from making more influential enemies, might stop Jack 
from disappointing his friends with the outcome of his actions in Parliament. Who knows, Mike? Yeah, yeah, we've got Sir Joseph's words ringing in our ears. You know, get your friends to see, get them out of Parliament. Tell <laughs> Jack to quit doing himself in. So, I, I guess there's only one way to find out. Ian, what do you say next week to a little bit more, Patrick O'Brien? Mike, with all my heart. <laughs> and owls and ospreys, eagles, weasels, stouts, martins, and heaps, oh, stoats. Oh. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah, he had nailed to the wall there hawks, falcons,